Hello, welcome to the second episode of Vertigo Voices. Right here, we cue the theme song. I'm working on something on the didgeridoo. It'll, oh, okay. We'll bring it together. <laughs> I'll edit it in right here. That wasn't that a great theme song? All right, second episode. Uh, first, I, I guess we uh, have to address the dark cloud hovering over the internet of uh, the death of Chadwick Boseman. Obviously really important figure in the comic book world, uh, playing back Black Panther. Yeah, I, I don't even know what to say. It's just so unexpected, yeah. and he was so young. It It's one of those that when I heard the news, I was in denial for probably all of 30 seconds before it sunk in. And just the fact that he brought so much attention and uh, to this role, and that... Hopefully, there will be a whole new group of people, a whole new generation who uh, finds these comics, the Black Panther comics, through his performance. So he uh, gave us a great character, he great embodiment of that character, and he will be missed. Yeah. We'll, we'll probably get another Black Panther movie, but I don't know if we'll get another Chadwick Boseman. Yeah, and I really hope they don't recast. Just give it over to Shuri and uh, give him a nice send-off. So he died of colon cancer. He'd been fighting it for like five years or something. And the majority of his career in the spotlight has been since he had been uh, diagnosed. I think his first $100 million you know, action movie was uh, Gods of Egypt. That was 2016. Then Civil War. Then Black Panther, two Avengers movies. 21 Bridges. The Five Bloods. All of that was after he was diagnosed with cancer while he was in treatment. So he was, he was actively in treatment while he was filming, doing stunts, doing long press tours. Like, it's, it's amazing that he uh, you know, was able to do so much. And he, he really felt, uh, I guess, committed to the roles that he was doing. Felt that that was a necessity while he was suffering. I mean, it's, it's insane. It makes him far more of a hero than any of the characters he portrayed. Very well said. Um, I watched this great video this morning. It was at some Comic-Con press conference where he was with the cast of Black Panther, and he was talking about these letters that he got from terminally ill oh, yeah, children. Yeah, exactly. And when he was going through the same thing, but he never complained. He never made it all about him, and he brought a lot of dignity and pathos to every performance he was in, even God bless him, God's of Egypt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, I haven't seen, but I've I've actually heard it's not terrible. Like it's it's watchably bad. It's know? fun bad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. He he will be missed, and uh, there won't be another one like him. Yeah, for sure. So okay, moving on. We'll start to talk about something a little bit more fun. I, I want to talk about Fandom, the uh, DC online fan event. Since we've had no Comic Cons at all this year, this was. DC's attempt at kind of a, an online Comic-Con to drum up interest in new properties. Look at these new movies and video games we've got. And, and that's fine. I mean, I love comic book adaptations. I've got a wall of comic book media. <laughs> so, I mean, I used to write about comic book media uh, pretty regularly. So I, I get it. But at the same time, like, I feel like you gotta got to respect where, where the the movies and video games came from, so I would have liked a little bit more focus on the comics, but whatever. To me, the, the big takeaway was the Suicide Squad trailer, which I thought looked amazing. 
It looks I, like a blast. Yeah, and I fucking hated the first Suicide Squad movie. <laughs> <laughs> As a huge fan of the old Ostrander and Yale run on Suicide Squad from the 80s and 90s, I felt that, like, the last movie was, like, just a fucking slap in the face. <laughs> just a, a hot topic day-glow nightmare. <laughs> 2016 Suicide Squad. I yeah. totally agree. That movie is, like, the, the girl on Twitter who insists that I'm not like other girls because I'm quirky and unique, <laughs> and everyone is like, you're exactly like other girls. <laughs> yeah, sure. I once described the soundtrack to that movie as like trying to watch a movie normally and having somebody sit behind you with a radio just randomly flipping the tuner to different stations. The images on the screen don't connect with the music at all. It was very obviously a last minute, hey, we just saw Guardians of the Galaxy and let's do a soundtrack like that. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I, I think I counted at one time and someone out there, of course, correct me if I'm wrong, which I probably am, but like just in the introduction... Because, like you said, music is is such a big part of any movie. And it was obvious that the music in Guardians of the Galaxy brought a lot of attention to uh, 70s rock, um, revived some songs that maybe uh, uh, this generation hadn't heard before. And Suicide Squad, I think there's like over five songs just in the beginning of the movie. Yeah, like like in the prologue. Yes. <laughs> Before the the title screen. <laughs> oh god, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I have ADD and even I was like, "Stop, stop. <laughs> Focus, please." Too too much. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a fucking mess. But anyway, the, the new one looks like the best type of course correction. Obviously, when you get James Gunn, he's going to bring his uh, certain style and to see him kind of cut away what didn't work from the first movie, but retain what did. That looks really interesting. And even even the cast members that return, like a really good example is Joel Kinnaman as Rick Flagg. He looks like a completely different person. <laughs> Comic book Rick Flagg was always broad-shouldered with a tight yellow T-shirt. <laughs> and uh, that's exactly what we get in this new one. But the, the thing I'm most excited for is uh, John Cena as Peacemaker. <laughs> when they announced that he was going to be in the movie, that was the role that he was speculated as for like the last two years. There was speculation that he was going to be playing Peacemaker, and I assumed that when they put him in the movie, they were going to kind of, you know, movie him up, give him a tactical outfit, and just to see him in that bright red, yellow, and blue shirt with that giant metal helmet looking like Peacemaker stepped right off of the page, I I was like, yes, thank you! (laughs) It, it does look like it has a lot more connection to the actual comic book. And it has a zany feel to it. Like, I, I don't know as much about it as you do because I just watched the trailer. And I don't know if I want to see any more before yeah, exactly. going straight into the movie. Like you said, if anyone's going to do it justice, it's going to be James Gunn. And hopefully, from what I understand from the feel of the trailer and a little bit of the behind-the-scenes stuff, it looked like they're setting it in the, night, in the 1970s. Is that correct? I don't think so. I think it's just got that vibe. Okay. okay. Uh, it's, I mean, again, you've got the same actors playing the same role, so it's technically a sequel to the last movie, but they're not really going to address it, I don't think. It's just going to be a, a new squad, and the people whose roles you're aware of are the same, like Waller and Boomerang and, uh, what's his name, uh, Flag, mm-hmm. and then obviously Harley Quinn's back. Which isn't, that's another thing. This is the first time in a movie I've liked 
Harley Quinn's costume. Oh, really? Like, it looks really cool. It's that black, oh, well, not black, black and red leather. It looks like the comic book costume, but made tactical, mm. which makes sense if you're on the Suicide Squad. She's not going to be wearing hot pants and... <laughs> Uh, a baseball jersey. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> a novelty tee. <laughs> and, carry, and carry around a goddamn baseball bat. Like, in this, she's got a bazooka. <laughs> yes, yes. She has some firepower. It's good to see. The hopes are high for that. Yeah. Uh, fingers are crossed. And I'm looking forward to it as well. Yeah. The other fandom stuff, um, a couple of video games. The, so there's a new Suicide Squad video game called Kill the Justice League. Which looks cool. It's set in the Arkham universe, like the Arkham video game series, but it doesn't look like it at all. Mm-hmm. So there's been, I think, four Arkham video games. Arkham Asylum, Arkham City, Arkham Knight, and Arkham Origins. And there's a movie called Assault on Arkham, which focused on the Suicide Squad. This doesn't follow any of I mean, it. <laughs> the creator of the game said that it takes place in that universe, but it blatantly ignores what we've seen so far. Like, this uses kind of the movie version of Deadshot, but Deadshot's already been in two of the games, and the movie stars him, and he does not they don't look anything alike. In the movie, he's voiced by Neil McDonough. And in the game, he's clearly modeled on the Will Smith Deadshot. Like he's black. So he's has one movie and two games where he's white, and now he's black. <laughs> Which, I, I, don't, I don't mind changing the race of characters or casting at all, but when it's within the universe, like it feels weird. It feels like Two Face in the Batman movies. It went from Billy D. Williams to Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> it's just that it doesn't work. <laughs> no. There is there is a gap there. Yeah. So, so anyway, it feels weird. And then King Shark also. King Shark was in the Assault on Arkham movie, and he gets his head blown off. But now he's in this video game. The game is set after. The, I don't know. <laughs> How it does feels that weird. Work? I, I feel like they just shouldn't have connected it. Mm-hmm. Like. You know, it would have, I would have been fine with a standalone Suicide Squad game with a black Deadshot and a King Shark that's alive. But to have them connected and then completely ignore what this same team did in games earlier just feels weird. But it's an alternate universe, Colby. <laughs> Great, if it is, that works for me, sure. <laughs> that seems to be the go-to now. <laughs> and there was another Batman video game called Gotham Knights, which looks like it's a sequel to the last Arkham game, but it's not. That one looks fine. It's like multiplayer play as one of the one of the Bat family. It's Nightwing, Robin, Batgirl, or Red Hood, and you just I don't know go around and beat people up. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't really grab you though, huh? Yeah, I mean, it looks fine. I don't know. They all look fine. <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. And then there was the the other big trailer to me at least. I mean, there there was the the Justice League trailer with. Uh, What's his name? Uh, uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League. I don't. I don't care about this. I, right. <laughs> I'm pretty vocal in my just not caring in general about the DC extended universe. And this looks like everything that I disliked about all those other movies, but ramped up to eleven because now he's completely unchecked because he was validated by all these fans wanting his four-hour version of this goddamn thing. <laughs> Which okay, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here, but on that note. If you like Zack Snyder's style, fine. The guy has made entertaining movies, like 300. I would even say that even though I'm not excited about the movie, there are things to like and admire in Sucker Punch. So if you want to make 
these superhero movies of these beloved characters that have this just out there, hyper-masculine sensibility. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But to everyone who's like, well, it's the Zack Snyder aesthetic. He has an aesthetic. It's like, well, so do Instagram filters. Yeah, exactly. It's fine to like things that aren't deep or that don't have some um, psychological impact, so to speak, or some message at the end. I love the Resident Evil movies. Right, right, (laughs) right. But don't give me McDonald's and tell me that, like, we're going to Roy Choi's Korean-Mexican, you know, fusion truck in L.A. because we're not, you know? So, yeah, I'm with you. It's just, the whole thing is just kind of meh. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah, and I don't know. It just looks like oversaturated, like, sapped all the color out of it. I don't know, whatever. The original Justice League was a mess. I'm... This one may be different and may be coherent, but I feel like it's still going to be a mess. I don't, I, again, I don't care. This isn't made for me, and I will probably watch it with, like, a sigh, you know? Right. So, <sighs> just resigned. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to have to watch it, but <laughs> but I'm just, I'm. it's probably going to be on par with the last version mm-hmm. for me, which was, again, a goddamn mess. <laughs> <laughs> but so was Batman versus Superman. Like, every, everyone acts like Justice League was some fluke. Like, oh, they fired him, and Joss Whedon came in and just fucked everything up. Well, like, Batman vs. Superman was a, was a disaster of a film. And there's still people that ignore any issue that it has and fight like hell to argue that it's some misunderstood masterpiece. It's not. doesn't make any sense. It's got <laughs> poor flow. It ignores basic tenets of storytelling. It, it's, it, it looks muddy and gross <laughs> like <laughs> the color is sapped out of everything this one looks like that cranked up to 11 so i don't know whatever i don't want to talk about it anymore <laughs> <laughs> the big batman news of fandom though was the trailer for the batman starring robert pattinson which looks really cool um looks like a dark detective story for batman yeah great let's do that <laughs> I don't want to see that for Superman, but for (laughs) Batman, yes. (laughs) And I'm glad that you set me straight on their inspiration for this movie, because I didn't know anything about it going in. And uh, like we were talking about on Facebook, I originally thought, oh gosh, we're getting another Batman origin story. But when you pointed out this is largely based around Batman year two, like a younger Batman when he's just feeling things out, so to speak, and getting his legs as a crime fighter, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, and I, don't, I mean, I don't think it's directly based on year two, but in the movie, it's his second year. And the way the way I described it as he's established, but seems to be untested. Mm-hmm. So he's a crime fighter. He's been out there solving crimes and beating up thugs, but he probably hasn't gone up against any supervillains. And my takeaway from the trailer, I don't know anything about the story other than what the trailer showed. I think it's a Riddler origin story. Okay. Yeah. I'm down for that. One of my friends thought that the dude at the beginning with the wrapped up face and the glasses was Hush. But I, I think it's Riddler. Mm-hmm. Hush, I, I, don't, I don't think there's enough time to do Hush in a movie like this. I didn't hear anything about it in the cast, but that, that doesn't mean anything. Yeah, exactly. They already do have enough in there with the Penguin and Catwoman. Yeah. And so I, if they just focus on the elements that they already have and do those to the best of their ability, I will be satisfied. Yeah, I think the biggest inspiration for it was Long Halloween. 
which was a Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale comic from mid-90s, which was like Batman going up against like a best-of of his rogues galleries while he's trying to solve a serial killing murder. It's set over the course of a year. Each story takes place on a holiday. And it's, it's an interesting book. I'm not a big fan of Jeff Loeb. All of his stories tend to be the same. Like he wrote Long Halloween, Dark Victory, Hush, and I think he did one more. All of his Batman works have the same flow. And you can tell who the killer is going to be because that character gets, quote, killed early on in the story. Uh And then they come back. (laughs) I have read The Long Halloween, but it's been a long time. Isn't that the one... uh, Spoilers for those of you who haven't read it. Calendar Man is the bad guy, right? Uh, No, he's in it. And they suspect him because the murders take place on holidays. But it turns out it's, I think, Falcone's daughter. I don't know. Okay, I'll have to revisit that one. Of all of Jeff Loeb's Batman stuff, I think it's the best. And uh, I think Robert Pattinson, it'll be interesting to see what he brings to the role. The poor guy, not that he needs me to defend him or anyone to defend him, but there's still a lot of people who are like, well, he played Edward in Twilight. It's like, yeah, that was, you know, how many years ago? 10, 12 years ago. The guy was in his (laughs) mid to early 20s. (laughs) A, a paycheck's a paycheck. Oh, yes. And B, he's a fucking actor. He is. (laughs) Actors act. He's not going to play Batman like he plays Edward. He's not going to play Batman like he played, I don't know, dude in the suit in Cosmopolis. <laughs> or or uh, dude from Good Time, whatever that character's name was in that movie. <laughs> good movie. Yeah, exactly. And he's a really good actor. Have you ever seen uh, The Rover with Guy Pierce? No. He's really good in that, too. He's established himself as a, as a really versatile actor over the last few years. And because so many of his roles aren't within, like, genre, fandom-type movies, genre fans have just ignored him. <laughs> and they just see him as the sparkly dude from Twilight. But no, he's, he's grown a hell of a lot as an actor. And I, when they first announced him, I was like, yeah, young. Uh, so he's not going to be Batfleck. <laughs> he's he's going gonna to be a young Bruce Wayne that we can watch grow and mature, which is a good idea. And again, he's got the chops. He's a good actor. So, yeah. Your hair. Oh, can we talk about Cheetah real quick? <laughs> yeah. Please. <laughs> yeah, I forgot there was a new Wonder Woman trailer. Yes. It didn't do anything for me. <laughs> me neither. I did have to go and look up an image of the Cheetah just to make sure. Because I, I have this fear, and hopefully it's an unfounded fear, that they will do with Cheetah what they did with Ares and Wonder yeah. Woman. And we will just get a CGI puppet with yeah. David Thewlis's voice. Um, Only with Kristen Wiig? Only with Kristen Wiig, yes, yes. Wouldn't it be weird if David Thewlis voiced Cheetah? <laughs> it would. It would not make a lot of sense. At least not uh, in this particular Hello there, Wonder Woman. I'm going to <laughs> jump around on my kitty-like feet here. That's my David Thewlis impression. I, believe it or not, David Thewlis was not in the room just now. That was just me. I know, it's pretty, it's pretty dead on. I know. Uncanny. And when they introduce her, it's at night, yeah. and obviously when yep. Wonder Woman like throws her up against the wall or the cliff or whatever, it's like, that's so yeah. much CGI. Yeah, it's the standard DCEU trope of CGI villain in an overly CGI, poorly lit landscape for the ending. Like a bland landscape, I should say. Yes. It's, I mean, it, Man of Steel had that ending with the destroyed Metropolis. <laughs> Batman vs. Superman had that ending with whatever the hell happened there with Doom, Doomsday and the weird, desolate landscape. Wonder Woman had that same ending. Suicide Squad kind of it was overly CGI'd, and they fought an overly CGI villain, but the landscape was at least a building. <laughs> true, true. 
And uh, Justice League. I mean, that was just a CGI nightmare in the end. <laughs> so yeah, I I don't have a whole lot of interest in this movie just because I'm I think of the DCEU movies, Wonder Woman's the best and her character is the most interesting. But again, I you know diamonds and shit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't care about this one character in this giant universe full of characters that I don't care about. Right, right. And I don't know I, I, I wasn't excited to see the return of, uh, oh gosh. Chris Pine. Chris Pine, yeah. I just wasn't. I know there are people out there who are like, oh yeah, he's back. But it's just felt so much unnecessary fan service for the people who loved their connection in the first movie. I appreciate the fact that they did kill him off and I didn't think that they needed to bring him back. But I am hopeful, just a, a tiny, tiny spark of hope with Cheetah because I did look at a still image and I was like, okay, that looks cool. It'd be better if she was in daylight. But yeah, like you... Like you alluded to, not going to hold my breath on that one. Yeah. I don't know. I'm really hoping that Suicide Squad like turns everything around and, and gets me excited about DC movies again. Because right now I am really excited for that and that alone. <laughs> and I feel like 20 years from now, that's going to be the, the one shining spot for me in the DCEU. The diamond that sparkles the most. Yeah, exactly. The biggest diamond <laughs> atop the pile of shit. <laughs> the one one complaint that I want to talk about, though, with Fandome is that there was almost no talk of the Netflix Sandman series, which has been in development for a while now. It was actually supposed to start filming earlier this year. They were, like, building the sets and casting and everything. And then COVID hit, and they had to put it all on hold. So I was hoping that maybe we'd get an update on that, and we didn't. The other thing was the Sweet Tooth TV series that's being produced by Robert Downey Jr.'s company. Really? Yeah. Um, Sweet Tooth's a comic book by Jeff Lemire, produced by Vertigo. It's really, really good. Really weird. Kind of post-apocalyptic animal creatures. I don't know. Read it. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I think it's already cast and everything, but I haven't heard anything more. So I was hoping to hear something about that, and we didn't. Alas. Yeah, the only thing I heard with Sandman was uh, it will be set in modern times. Yeah. Gaiman updated it, I don't know, three or four months ago when it was supposed to have been shooting, basically saying everything was on hold. They were going to wait till it was safe to shoot again, but that because of that, they're going to be like more prepared than any other show has ever been because <laughs> they've had months and months and months to go over everything again and again and again. So fingers crossed it turns out good. Uh, the fact that Gaiman is involved pretty closely makes me think it's probably going to turn out something akin to Good Omens. He was really involved in as well, and that was an excellent adaptation. So, yeah, fingers crossed. Here, here. The other bit of news that I want to talk about is that this last Friday was Jack Kirby's birthday. And uh, he would have been 103. Obviously, Jack the King Kirby has been involved in countless comic books over the years. You know, there's a reason they call him the king. Uh, but to me, have you ever heard of Jack Kirby's Sandman? I did not hear about Jack Kirby's Sandman until Neil Gaiman spoke about it in terms of uh, the comic that he took on for Vertigo. And I had no idea that it was actually an original. Yeah. Yeah, so in the 70s, Jack Kirby uh, and Joe Simon created a version of the Sandman for DC Comics. Looks like a superhero. He's got his red and yellow costume. And he was joined by 
two like living nightmares named Brute and Glob. And that version of Sandman, as well as Brute and Glob, made their way into Neil Gaiman's work with, I think it was the second volume, Doll's House, the story that introduced the Corinthian and the Serial Killers Convention. The superheroic Sandman of Jack Kirby shows up in that. Only he gives him a different identity of Hector Hall, which is a character from another DC comic. But <laughs> anyway, it was a really interesting idea. That's one of the things I loved about Game and Sandman is that, that blending of all of the mythology of the character. Like there's some Wesley Dodds thrown in in the beginning. There's some of this Sandman. Brute and Glob become fairly interesting characters in their own right in Game and stories. And I don't know. It's, it's cool to see that. Well, and like you said, just realizing that that's one more creation that Kirby had a hand in mm-hmm. makes you wonder, is there anything the guy didn't touch? Yeah. Well, even things that he didn't, he did. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So many deviations of his work and inspirations of, from him in other artists' work. I think everyone who worked on comics, or who's worked on comics, owes something to Jack Kirby. And yeah, so happy 103rd. The king. Absolutely. (laughs) So now let's go into the actual book that we read for today, uh, which is Lovecraft. Right away, I have an issue with the uh, credit on this comic book. How so? So on the cover, it says Hans Rodionoff, Enrique Breccia with Keith Giffen. Keith Giffen wrote the fucking comic. And he gets a whiff at the bottom. So it's based on a script written by Hans Rodionoff. So it was going to be a movie at one time. Well, yeah. I mean, he, he wrote the script. I don't, I, don't, I don't have any idea if it was intended. Like, I don't, I don't have any idea if it was commissioned or if he just wrote it for fun or what. But he wrote a script called Lovecraft about you know, fictional life of H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, it was never made. So then Keith Giffen adapted it into a comic and... Enrique Breccia did the art. So I feel like it should be Keith Giffen and Enrique Breccia based on Lovecraft by Hans Rodionov. <laughs> I wonder why he got top billing. Though. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Keith Giffen is a staple in comic books. He's been in the industry for decades, mm-hmm. and he's a fairly well-known name. Hans Rodionov's just some fucking dude. <laughs> no, he's all right. <laughs> he's written some other stuff, but he's not nearly as well-known as Keith Giffen, so I don't know. feels weird. Credit is odd to me. So what? what's Lovecraft about? All right. Tell me. <laughs> Give me your book report. <laughs> well, for people who are not familiar with H.P. Lovecraft, um, who at least they don't think they are, uh, his work, his short stories, have really just wormed their way into uh, pop culture. Just everything. 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 Uh, from um, modern day horror to uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anything that has tentacles. <laughs> Anything that has tentacles, yes. This take, this particular comic book, uh, combines strokes of biographical detail with Lovecraft's fictional concepts and the stories that he wrote about, mostly like existential threat due to deities, old, old deities. Cosmic deities. Cosmic deities, yes, that are waiting out there just on the rim to, uh, they're either apathetic towards humankind or just outright hostile. And so this book takes a lot of actual real-life details and creates this fiction where 
Um, H.P. Lovecraft is an author, not so much because he loves to write, but because what he is writing coincides with visions that he sees that he and no one else can see and how he is trying to, well, I guess, so to speak, protect the actual reality that we live in from the gruesome baddies on the other side of the veil, so to speak. That's a very roundabout, long way to say it. <laughs> yeah, it's basically uh, everything you wrote about was real. Yes, yeah. And, and he was plagued by uh, the creatures that he wrote about. It was really interesting to me to see how those creations were weaved into the stories, like like Waitley and um, the fuck the Arkham, and it, it was it was interesting to see what was adapted and what was left out, like the almost like a best of. Yes, yeah. If if and it's the great thing about this book too that I appreciated about it is that if you're a fan of Lovecraft, then you will see those little details that uh, relate to. Um, certain stories that he wrote, like The Mountain of Madness and mm -hmm. uh, The Dunwich Horror. And even if you're not a fan of Lovecraft, it's a beautiful book, and it's yeah. just a scary read. The art uh, by Enrique Breccia is really fucking cool. It is. Uh, one of the things I really like about it is the way he shifts somewhat when it goes into like the dark Arkham, Massachusetts world. It almost goes from etching style in the real world to a more watercolor sloppy kind of uh, like blurred uh, a little yeah and I don't mean sloppy in the art I mean sloppy as in it's just very visceral <laughs> like there's goo and there's tentacles and there's weird <laughs> shit everywhere the line work is really amazing because again it goes from kind of standard uh, kind of like drawing sketching to what looks like watercolor and I don't know. I'm not an artist, so I don't know. But that's what it looks like. <laughs> it does. It does. Um, there's even some... I wish I had remembered which page it's on, but there's one in particular where a young H.P. Uh, Lovecraft goes into this other world of Arkham, and if you look at the panel, if, like, if you look closely, it's like, that looks like it's on a canvas. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, for sure. I know what you're talking about. There's also that scene towards the end where... Uh, right here, that you can totally see the... Right. The lines of yeah. The yeah. There's a, a really interesting sex scene, <laughs> for lack of a better word, that uh, juxtaposes Lovecraft having sex with his wife with a cat being, I don't know, murdered and obliterated by some sort of little demonic creature. And yeah, it's it's a fucking gruesome book, but it, gorgeous in its gruesomeness. I think when uh, well, when you showed it to me last week and we decided that we were going to do this for our episode, I made some comment, like I looked at the art and I, I said something like, oh, this is looks really whimsical. Well, in retrospect, <laughs> that was not the right word to use. Like you said, in, in, in some panels, when you're looking at that, what looks like um, etchings or uh, basic ink work, it's interesting to see how in his everyday life, like when he's walking through the city or mm -hmm. he's talking to his publisher, everything has a kind of a, a, a sepia tone. Yeah, yeah. It's brown. It's kind of, I don't want to say it's ho-hum. because Old-timey. Old-timey, yes. You, it's like you're looking at a very old photograph. Yeah. But then when he goes into uh, Arkham, 
or uh, there's also a couple scenes in his in his real life, like yeah. when he's with his wife Sonia, who he really loves. The colors get really vibrant, yeah. especially in the the more frightening scenes. It has this feeling. I felt like um, you know, have you ever had a like a, a really vivid dream or nightmare where everything stands out in detail, yeah. but at the same time, like it's just a dream. So it all blurs together. Yeah. Um, that's kind of what the art evokes for me. So at the beginning of the story, it focuses on his father kind of going crazy. Cause like his, because his father discovers the Necronomicon or something. Is that, was that right? I can't remember. <laughs> and his father uh, was like the keeper of the Necronomicon. Yes. yes. And that kind of drives him crazy. He ends up in an asylum and dies there. And in real life, Lovecraft's father died in an asylum, uh, although he actually died of syphilis. <laughs> and it's not clear if H.P. Lovecraft actually knew that in his private correspondence and whatnot. It's not clear if he was aware that his father died of syphilis. Oh. Um, he just knew that he went crazy and died in an asylum. And I think one in one of his letters, he says that his dad died of something else, like whatever they credit in the book. I, I can't remember. But anyway, I thought that was an interesting detail that you know, that actually happened to his to his father. Going back to the art too, Breccia just draws a hell of an underbite on on Lovecraft in here. He does, doesn't he? <laughs> and it's if you ever seen a picture of H.P. Lovecraft, he draws the character to resemble the real life Lovecraft almost perfectly. But it's like it's it's kind of shocking to see him in profile sometime in here. <laughs> he looks like a creeper. Yeah. You know? He looks like someone who is very troubled. I appreciate that detail, actually. One of my favorite bits in the book is when he's talking to his editor towards I don't know, it's about the midway point, and he's talking about his books and or uh, rather his stories in Weird Tales magazine, and his editor's giving him some advice and. Then, his editor says, uh, where do you come up with these names and why are the monsters always unnameable, eldritch, unspeakable, or indescribable? A man with your vocabulary should be able to come up with better adjectives. And then Lovecraft says, some things are too horrible to describe. And his editor goes, so you say. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I, I don't know that I really can consider myself a Lovecraft fan because I've read a fair amount of his works. And I find his writing to be really annoying <laughs> because there's a lot of insane detail of shit that doesn't matter. Yes. Like he'll use four adjectives in a sentence while he's talking about walking down a hallway. Mm -hmm. And then when the big evil creature shows up, he'll say, you know, it, it was so frightening that I dare not repeat it what it looked like, dear reader, to save you from the insanity. Like, fuck you! Make me insane with fear. Jesus. You just had 20 words describing the eldritch gibbous moon. Yeah, exactly. Told me about what the goddamn hallway looked like and described the creaking floorboard in 10 words, and I can't get one to talk about how creepy the creature looked like? Which is kind of unfair because he does describe some of the creatures. It's just not in any way that really inspires any fear. No. A lot of what we think about when we think of his creatures 
his creations like like Shagaths or Cthulhu or uh, any of those otherworldly beings, a lot of what we think of is artist interpretations of them from the years gone by. And and I don't know, it's it just it bugs me that he never he was never good at describing things that he was creating. <laughs> Well, I think the, uh, one of the reasons that Cthulhu is as popular as he is is because I, I can't think of another Lovecraft deity that was as described as Cthulhu. And, yeah. and he, doesn't, he doesn't go into extraneous detail. It's just that we have this image of this horrible creature that yeah. you know has the head of an octopus yeah. and the body of a dragon. And so, like you said, a lot of artists are like, okay, I can do something creepy <laughs> yeah. with that. You know? Look, the goddamn thing has tentacle face, <laughs> wings, go crazy with it. Yeah. I can't describe anymore. You'll go insane. <laughs> a lot of room for interpretation there. Um, and on that note, I think, I think uh, he would probably be very pleased, since he was such a lover of adjectives, that now whenever people are talking about cosmic horror or some type of existential uh, supernatural threat, it's described as Lovecraftian. Yeah, he would yeah, probably exactly. he would probably get a kick out of that. He's he's one of those writers that is more influential than prolific. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I know a lot of people that love Lovecraft works or deviations of his work, but who've never read a single story of his. Mm-hmm. And I've only read a few, but I've seen tons of adaptations and works that spun out of of his. Well, on that note, uh, for our listeners, can you name some Lovecraft-inspired pieces of media that you were totally down with and that you really appreciate? One of my most recent and favorites was uh, Color Out of Space. Uh, it's an adaptation of the story, Color Out of Space, starring Nicolas Cage. And so like Richard Stanley, who's, who's already a really interesting, borderline dangerously crazy individual who just makes awesome movies. <laughs> but so you take him, add the zaniness of Nick Cage <laughs> and the zaniness of Lovecraft, and you're going to get something special. <laughs> but I really enjoyed that. Uh, I think last week I mentioned the movie Underwater. That's also a, a Cthulhu story. There's some pretty direct parallels to the Cthulhu mythos. And But there's been tons of, of just random adaptations of his stuff. Stuart Gordon, the director, did quite a few Lovecraft adaptations as well. Um, his movie Dagon was a pretty good adaptation of Shadow Over Innsmouth. There's a video game I've been playing called The Sinking City. And then, most recently, like, literally within the last couple weeks, there's the TV series uh, Lovecraft Country on HBO. Very, very good. Well, I've only seen the first two episodes, as all of us have. We'll see what happens tomorrow. It is really interesting to see how uh, Lovecraft was... was, uh, not known for his open-mindedness, mm-hmm. and he had a few writings that you could you could call racist or xenophobic, and it would be hard to argue with. And it, it's pretty well documented that he had racist beliefs, which also wasn't uncommon from where he lived. I mean, he, he was a really sheltered dude. <laughs> and he came from, like, an upper-crust white family in New England. So, I mean, he... He's going to be racist. <laughs> Pretty much, yes, yes. You could, you could say that he was a product of his time. Evidently that chilled in him over time as well. Like, his wife was Jewish, 
so this this was funny to me in, in my reading like the racist philosophy is pretty baked into a lot of his work but apparently later in life he kind of uh, like appreciated kind of the differences in other races, but he just got really classicist. <laughs> so just, yeah, I guess just swap like one uh, dangerous philosophy for another. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and it's, that's it, interesting too, because I, I'm bastardizing this quote of his, but that someone who had um, an understanding of, um, you know, people's greatest fear is fear of the unknown and also someone who wrote about the universe in such a, a huge way. You know, the idea that there were so many things beyond our understanding that if we even got a glimpse at some of them, our cheese would slide off our cracker. And like you mentioned earlier, you know, you, you juxtapose that with how sheltered he was and how overprotected he was. It's just, it, it's always interesting to see uh, uh, to realize how sometimes uh, creators' works and how you identify with them are sometimes at 180 degree odds with what their reality was like. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting to me, too, that in this Lovecraft uh, comic book, none of that racism, xenophobia, classism, none of that's addressed at all. And I'm wondering if that's, if that's needed. Do you have to delve into that when you're talking about Lovecraft? Or at this point, like, I mean, I feel like at this point, we, we all know that. We all know that he had some beliefs that don't jive with today's understanding of reality. Right. <laughs> and and is, that, is that a requirement to address that when you're adapting or talking about him? Or is it okay to enjoy the good parts while downplaying the bad parts? I don't know. Well, I won't lie. As a Lovecraft fan, this comic book is how I would prefer yeah, to remember exactly. him. <laughs> it is a, a much more well. Of course, it's a it's a fanciful take on his actual life, but I would prefer to think of him as this uh, lonely outsider who dealt with his feelings of isolation by sacrificing, yeah. by doing something that was bigger than himself. And it is interesting to see how that like you mentioned, how that plays off in uh, Lovecraft Country. Because again, these are works that outlasted him. No mm -hmm. matter what his personal beliefs are, these are works that have gone on to have a life of their own. And I also think it's interesting that it's told from this particular perspective now. Uh, okay, who is, who's the author of Lovecraft Country? He helped with this with the show, too. I'm just going to cut all this out. <laughs> a cut from you asking the question to me answering it. Perfect. Thank you, editing. Matt Ruff wrote Lovecraft. Matt Ruff. Yes, thank you. So to connect his works to what we have now with Lovecraft Country, the latest reiteration of his universe, and I think it's kind of funny, too, how I th one of the reasons Lovecraft is, is still so still has such a, a, a fingerprint on literature and pop culture and media is because while he was alive, he was totally cool with sharing his work. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was really interesting to me. He often had correspondence with writers like Robert Block and Robert E. Howard, creator of Tarzan. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Is that Edgar Rice Burroughs? Wait. Okay, Robert E. Howard. Robert E. Howard was Conan. Conan. Yeah. Conan, yeah. So yeah, uh, he sh yeah he shared a lot with Robert E. Howard. The Conan universe is actually the same universe as the Lovecraft. Universe. 
Oh, really? Yeah. I did not know that. There's like some interesting intersections there with, but yeah. So, and he allowed tons of writers to expand his mythos and kind of play with the toys that he created. But yeah, I thought that was really cool. But he also borrowed a lot from other writers, so I, I get it. <laughs> I always like to tell people about Robert W. Chambers, who's like, Lovecraft, but a good writer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I really like his stuff. He actually, Robert Chambers wrote one of the first fish people stories, quote, you know, like, you know how in Lovecraft's work, there's the idea of deities mating with humans and creating these hybrid creatures, yes. like an in's mouth. Yeah. So Robert Chambers wrote a story called The Harbor Master that was the first story to introduce like this fish-human-humanoid creature. And Lovecraft used that to, to great effect in later stories. Huh. All right, well, I'm going to have to go back and read that now. The only Chambers work I'm familiar with is, of course, like what anyone who even has a modicum of, of literature history is, is the, the King in Yellow. Yeah. But yeah, I did not know about that. So, but he 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 did kind of wear his inspirations on his sleeve. Did H.P. Lovecraft, and he was pretty unabashed about it as well. In terms of this book, I'm curious to know from your perspective. When you first came across this book, what was your basis of knowledge for Lovecraft, and did that affect how you read it? I think so. I read it in college. I think it came out in. 2005 or something. I read it around when it was new. And I think really my only base knowledge of Lovecraft... No, it came out in 2003, excuse me. I think my only base knowledge of Lovecraft was uh, was probably adaptations of his stuff and just the general Cthulhu mythos knowledge that like everyone knows. Because I'm sure a lot of people listening are like, well, I don't know anything about Lovecraft. Yes, you do. Everyone knows <laughs> something about Cthulhu mythos because... You've seen the movie Hellboy, or you've seen uh, that episode of South Park where Cthulhu shows up. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, literally, th this, is a, this is a mythos that's baked into popular culture so deeply that people wouldn't even realize it. I think I just knew the bare minimum. I may have read one or two of his stories at that point, whereas instead of now, where I've read, like, three or four. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and um, what are the details that you picked up in this book that maybe you didn't the first time? Because I'm sure there are more details upon subsequent readings that I'll be like, oh, I didn't see that the first time. Um, but I was, I just, I was interested in terms of um, when you go through it, because I read it twice, what I saw in the second viewing that I didn't see in the first. Was there anything that stood out to you? Um, honestly, probably not, <laughs> because... I, I read it once when it was new. I think I've read it three times, actually, but there's been significant gaps in between. Kind of like the basic references I already knew. Uh, like, he calls himself Randolph Carter, which is a Lovecraft character. Obviously, there's the references to Arkham. The villain in it is uh, Waitley from Dunwich Horror. One of the things I picked up on this last reading is at the end, when he's kind of confronted with that doppelganger, it was like, this is all in your head. I wish it would have ended there. <laughs> oh, that have been? I wish it would have ended with just him, like a slobbering idiot wow, <laughs> who, yeah. who, who was actually insane this whole time. And he's forced to confront that. But obviously then he's like, no, I'm going to keep fighting me. <laughs> <laughs> it probably would have been, well, I don't want to play armchair psychologist, but it probably would have been a little bit closer to real life as opposed to... Again, the, the way that we would prefer to remember H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. I, what, what struck me is there's uh, quite a few 
panels in here. For example, when he's going for a walk with Sonia, when she comes to visit him, if you look at statues in the park, you're like, what is that? Yeah. Like, there's a statue in here where they're just going, like, getting to know each other and, like, having a little bit of flirtation. Um, there's a statue in here that looks like a, a dog with with uh, uh, knives stuck in it or sticks yeah. or something. Yeah, and then on a, in another panel, there's this gargoyle-looking thing that looks like its eyes are following them. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a scene in here, because unfortunately, Lovecraft's mom, as I'm sure you know, ended up dying in the same asylum that her husband yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. Um, when she is admitted to the asylum, you know things are not right because the way that Brachio, Breccia, God damn it. Breccia. Breccia. Thank you. <laughs> The way he draws it, like, uh, the doctor, you know that something is not right. Yeah. There's, like, a little glint off the doctor's glasses that you're like, ah, oh, not all is well here. But then he adds details, like, going down the hallway towards her room, there's, like, there's litter on the floor. Yeah. And, and you're like, what is that doing on the floor? Like, why would you draw that there? And it's just these little details that subconsciously signal to you that this world is rotten. Yeah. The detail in the art is... is insane <laughs> and again just that the, that gross grimy feel that everything has and like we were talking about last year uh, last year fucking a i haven't had enough coffee please edit that out <laughs> last week when we were discussing our vertigo reference books and you had vertigo visions and uh-huh. we were talking about how there's a lot of art in here and that absolutely falls under um, the descriptor of grotesque but it's still so fascinating the way it's rendered and it sucks you into the story oh also his at the end when he's like saying goodbye to his wife and he says uh they can't leave because he'll always be connected to providence and he says i am providence that was a an actual quote he really loved the town of providence rhode island i think it's on his tombstone actually is it yeah, probably. i think so <laughs> So yeah, it again, to touch upon the idea that he didn't get out much, like you said, he loved Providence, he did not like to stray from that area, but the world that occupied his head was so vast. Going back to the art uh, and the artist, so his father was a comic book artist as well, and I discovered this in my research. So in the 70s, his father did an adaptation of the Dunwich Horror for Heavy Metal magazine. Which is funny to me, because that means... Sorry, his father's name was Alberto Breccia. So that means father and son have both drawn the character of Waitley from the Dunwich Horror. Because he's like the villain in the Dunwich Horror, and then he shows up in this. And I thought that was a funny connection. I'd like to see how his dad drew Waitley. Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> I've not read that comic, but... <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting. Another thing I thought was was kind of cool about his work was that I'm sure in your research you stumbled upon, he worked on Swamp Thing. Mm-hmm. What else did he do? Oh, he did X-Force and Batman Gotham Knights. Mm-hmm. And I, did you look, look up his Batman by any chance? I didn't. I have his run on Swamp Thing. Oh, do you? It was like Swamp Thing volume three, I think. It was the early 2000s after the Swamp Thing series of- Focused on Tefik. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, I haven't seen his Batman, though. It's <laughs> it's kind of gruesome. He like looks like this muscle-bound gargoyle, and like his teeth are too big for his mouth, so he has this permanent rictus grin on his face that's, that's really like 
unsettling. Batman has the rictus grin? Yeah, yeah. He almost doesn't have lips. I don't know about that. <laughs> it just looks creepy as hell in my mind. That might just be his style of, like, the lip thing. I think so. He's got a hell of, hell of a mouthful of chompers there. He does, he does. Looks like you wouldn't want to put your hand too close. Yeah. Huh, interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that he did any Batman. I'm well aware of the Swamp Thing stuff. Did he do the Swamp Thing? A little deviation here, but did he do the Swamp Thing where John Constantine shows up? No, that was well before his work on Swamp Thing. Okay, all right. That was like in the 80s. His Swamp Thing stuff was in the 2000s. Oh. Yeah. John Constantine did show up in it, (laughs) but not the introduction of Swamp Thing or of... uh, Constantine. Yeah, I always thought he was a really good pick for Swamp Thing. He, in his run on Swamp Thing, there's a bit where Alec Holland comes back. Alec Holland is the character whose consciousness is in Swamp Thing's body. And so, like, his literal remains come back. And he's this weird little skeleton dude with one eye. Oh, wow. It was, it was fun to have Alec Holland meet Swamp Thing. Who thought watercolor could be so gruesome? Uh, anything else to talk about North Lovecraft? Oh, there's one part I, I thought was funny. So the story is all about the gruesomeness of his imagination creeping into everyday life. And there's a part where uh, like an assassin from the Arkham universe tries to kill him in his hotel room and he bludgeons the assassin to death with a typewriter. And then uh, he goes and was like, I just want to talk, I need some help. And the police come, and there's this broken typewriter with chunks of gore and blood all over it. And the cop's like, yeah, I don't don't see anyone. What happened? (laughs) Like, well, he must have escaped. Well, you know, no harm, no foul. I guess we'll just be out of here. I'm like, like, they're like, oh, there's no evidence. Can't really do anything. like, there's a, there's a fucking, like, viscera. Oh, like, clearly something happened here. They're like, you fucking liar. Like, what? No, look! <laughs> Even if it was just an animal or something, like, clearly something happened. And then the the hotel concierge is like, well, I'll send someone up to tend to that uh, spill, Mr. Lovecraft. Like, it's not, what? <laughs> Those are brains. Yeah. <laughs> Open your fucking eyes. Oh, poor Howard. Um, oh, on that note, uh, did you hear anything about this this comic book being made into a movie? Well, there was like a year ago, there was talk about it being adapted, I think. There hasn't been any movement since then, from what I'm aware of. I want to say in like November or December or so of 2019, there was some talk about it being adapted again. Which is, it would be, that would be really fucking weird to have a script that got turned into a comic that got turned into a script. Um... And I'm not sure, depending on the original script, um, maybe there's more there to work with and to a full-length feature film. Um, but yeah, I heard it was what the guys from Game of Thrones were supposed to oh, really? adapt it. Yeah. Weird. Ben Hoff and <coughs> Wise. Benioff. Benioff. Thank you. He wrote the first draft of X-Men Origins Wolverine. Did he really? Yeah. His draft oh. was pretty good. And then it got turned into that piece of shit movie. <laughs> Alas. <laughs> the biggest, my biggest complaint about that is his draft featured just a knockdown, drag out bar fight between Logan and Sabretooth. 
and it was like, you know, breaking chairs and tables and people going flying. And it was like an old timey, just visceral bar fight. And in the movie, that bar fight is like one punch where they, they meet in a bar, they run at each other, Sabretooth throws Wolverine through a door. And then it's like, like a choreographed fight in a, a lumber yard. Something like, so the bar fight scene takes 10 seconds. And in the script, that was a really cool scene. <laughs> yeah. So much wasted potential there. Well, you know, if, if anyone can adapt it into an interesting movie, it would be those guys. No matter what you think of the ending of Game of Thrones, let's not go there. I was um, fine with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it should be continued on that. But it would be, it would be interesting to see, uh, especially now with the adaptation of Lovecraft Country on HBO Max, is there more actual Lovecraft lore coming to the screen? I heard that Richard Stanley, the director of Color Out of Space, is working on an adaptation of, I believe, of the Dunwich Horror. Really? Okay. And apparently he wants to do a cinematic Lovecraft universe, which sounds really cool to me. I haven't seen The Color Out of Space yet. I keep meaning to watch it. But for those who don't know, Richard Stanley uh, is a interesting filmmaker who's had a really weird career in Hollywood. He directed a couple movies. Then in the mid-90s, he was working on an adaptation of The Island of Dr. Moreau that got taken away from him. It was a really troubled production. It was finished by John Frankenheimer. I think so. And the finished film is just a mess. Um, but there's a really, really cool documentary about that movie called Lost Soul. And it came out just a couple years ago. And uh, it's all about Richard Stanley working on the movie, getting fired, how his career kind of ended after that. And he just like laid low for 20 years. Uh, and then he got a chance to you know, make a new movie just the last couple of years. And Color Out of Space got really good reviews and it's a really weird visceral, visceral film. So I'm hoping to see him do more stuff later. Yeah, hearing him talk at length in Lost Soul, he sounds absolutely nuts in just the best way. Like the kind of person that when you meet and talk to them for five minutes, it's one of those like, I kind of want to get the hell out of here, but I also kind of don't want to miss anything. <laughs> we might have to go on the queue then. Yeah, it's really cool. I believe it's on Amazon Prime. I, re I rewatched that and Island of Dr. Moreau back to back, <laughs> which I would recommend doing. <laughs> Well, yeah, it sounds like if there are any more Lovecraft movies coming down the pipe, he just might be right up his alley. He might be the guy to steer that boat, so to speak. Yeah, I, again, I'd, I'd really like to see what, what he does. He also, so he directed a movie in the early 90s called Hardware, which is kind of an adaptation of a 2000 AD comic. And legally, legally it is. <laughs> I can't, can't remember what side it came down on, but anyway. And then he did another movie called Dust Devil, which is like a weird horror slasher metaphysical story about the Australian outback. I don't know, it's a really odd movie, but I enjoyed it greatly. On that note, can you think of anything else? Have you read anything else recently or watched anything else? I started The Terminal this morning. Oh, no, excuse me. The, there is no, oh, fuck, that's a Tom Hanks movie. 
Wow, you have so much to edit out this, this series, sir. I'm so sorry. Terminal, Terminal City. Oh, Terminal City. <laughs> okay. <laughs> gotcha. What? Yeah, yeah. I need to reread that too. Um, and I, I do enjoy the Art Deco, just the general. Just I almost said cinematography. I really enjoy the Art Deco inspiration of the panels, the references between oh, movies like Metropolis uh-huh. and even like Batman the Animated Series. There's a lot, and I'm only like a quarter of the way through the comic, but there's a lot in there that I'm just like, I really don't care that much about the story, Yeah, but it's just fun to look at. Yeah, exactly. So for the folks who like some really interesting eye candy, Terminal City is a good one to check out. I did just get my copy of Lovecraft Country from Auntie's Bookstore. Shout out to our independent local bookstore. And I'm looking forward to digging into that. Because didn't you tell me that you had a friend who said that it was unadaptable? Yeah, one of my friends who read it said that he couldn't figure out how they would make it work for the screen. And I haven't read it, but I've I've liked what they've done so far on the show. And from what I've seen and what I've read, it, it seems to be fairly close to the book. So I don't know. I don't know if there's some huge strange direction that the story takes, but it seems to work so far. <laughs> I'm excited to give it a go, see what lies within. Oh, what what would you say, what are you leaning towards where we're going to go next? What are your ideas? Well, first I was going to talk about what I'm reading. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, please, <laughs> please. <laughs> please do. <laughs> so uh, I just finished Sandman Mystery Theater. I've been slowly reading that series I don't know, rereading some of it, but slowly reading that series over the last several months. And so I just finished that, which is a really good series, but kind of like I said last week with Hellblazer, I wouldn't recommend reading it all at once. The stories are all four-part mysteries, and it's kind of like, you know, you read a couple, and like, oh, I wonder who the killer's going to be this time. <laughs> it, it gets pretty obvious after a while, like all mysteries are. So I would suggest, uh, if anyone's interested in that series, just reading a few random volumes of it to kind of get the, the gist. Or, hell, read the whole series. Just take some time between, <laughs> between volumes, because it's got great art and really cool, really cool modern look at classic 1930s whodunit. And the characters of Wesley Dodds and Diane Belmont are great protagonists. Cool story. And nice and uh, grisly murders and all that. (laughs) Guy Davis was the artist for a majority of the series. He has an art style that fits the tone of the book just perfectly. Anyway, it's really cool. I would strongly recommend it. So right after I finished Sandman Mystery Theater, I read the four-part story in Starman that ties in with Mystery Theater which uh, is called Sand and Stars. And it's all about um, the main character, Starman, Jack Knight, in the present day, meeting Wesley Dodds, the Sandman, as as an old man. And I've read that story before, but I've never read it within the context of Sandman Mystery Theater. And it's really fucking cool to see the way those two books overlap. And in the third issue, there's a 10-page chunk of Starman that is just a Sandman Mystery Theater story. It's got Guy Davis doing the art. It was just a perfect crossover. At the time that that came out, there was actually a crossover in Sandman Mystery Theater as well called The Mist. There's a storyline about the origin of uh, 
Starman villain named The Mist. Ted Knight, the original Starman, shows up in that Sandman story. And so it's cool to see the two. It's like a perfect crossover where you can read one or the other, and they don't really connect. But when you read them back to back, you see the little, like, little tiny lines that connect them both. Highly recommended. I wish that when they collected Sandman Mystery Theater, they put Sand and Stars in there. And when they collected Starman, they'd put the mist in there. It sounds pretty expertly woven, though. Yeah, exactly. And again, I've mentioned Starman before, but it's an excellent comic. It's not Vertigo, but you should still read it. (laughs) (laughs) So that being said, what should we read next week? Excellent question. Uh, I would like, this is a couple weeks off, but um, I think for the last week of September, it would be fun to do a censored list because the last week of September is like national oh, yeah. uh, banned books week. And it would be interesting to, I know that like Sandman is on the list of challenged and banned mm-hmm. comic books. Why the last man is. So if you're done with that idea, I mean, when, it, when it comes to vertigo, that's going to be a pretty wide net because I'm pretty sure every vertigo comic would end up on that list somehow. Probably. <laughs> so probably in that case, oh, why don't we do Preludes and Nocturnes then? The first Sandman volume. Okay. I've reread that recently, and it's a it's a fun read, and there's a lot to talk about. Ooh, have you ever seen Twenty Four Hour Diner? It sounds familiar. It's a short film. It's a short fan film that adapts that one Sandman issue that I talked about last week for oh. Twenty Four Hours, uh-huh. and it's a literal adaptation of that issue. Uh, it's really well done <laughs> for a fan film. It's awesome. Um, so maybe we should watch that as well and talk about it. Yes, let's do that. Alright, sounds good. So, uh, any other wrap-up? Not that I can think of, except dear listeners, if you're out there, please lend us your ears, subscribe, comment, critique, rate us. You know how this internet stuff works. Yeah. We can. You can find this on uh, all sorts of platforms now we're on itunes or apple music whatever the hell it's called now (laughs) (laughs) on uh amazon yeah look us up write rate whatever (laughs) i'm using it i need more coffee (laughs) oh me too me too thanks for bearing with us thank you for listening Uh, keep reading and we will talk with you next week